Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 19, verses 1 to 22. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Galgatha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be here and to speak to a group that's so used to the English accent already. 
Pastor Moody and I go back a long way. I remember uh, we were students together, so we've known each other for over half our lives, and his life is slightly longer than my life. Um, so it's really good to be here for your special celebration. I, I'm, I'm wearing one of your celebration T-shirts, but I do feel a bit of a cheat because although I got to the finishing line before um, all the other runners, uh, that's only because I didn't take part in the race. Uh, <clears throat> What we're going to do is we're going to look at that passage uh, we just had read for us from uh, John chapter 19, page 905. Uh, This morning we're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus, and this evening the resurrection from John chapter 20. Now, of course, the danger when you're looking at passages that are about events that everyone uh, seems to know is that it can lack the surprise. It's a bit like watching a film about something like the Titanic sinking, and you know the outcome uh, before you read. But actually, what I, what I want us to do is I want us to look really closely at the text and try and think through this with fresh eyes to see what is going on, what did the people understand to be going on, and then once we've gone through uh, the passage fairly closely, we're going to think about uh, two lessons that we need to learn. So let's have a look at John chapter 19. What I think is being presented to us here is not just the crucifixion, but the crucifixion of the king. Each gospel has a different emphasis, and I think that's one of the things that really comes through in John's gospel. If you just look at the previous conversation, you're going to need the text in front of you. Even if it's on your cell phone, please don't check your email. Uh, But what you can do is, is you can look at what's going on here, and you can see that Jesus has just had a conversation with Pilate about how he's got a kingdom, chapter 18, verse 36, and Pilate says, so you are a king, in verse 37. And what we're going to see is how Jesus is a king. The first verse of our passage, chapter 19, verse 1, it looks like Pilate's in charge, because Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Jesus is basically passive, so it looks like Pilate's in charge. The next verse, we have the soldiers, And they seem to be in charge. They twist together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they treat him mockingly as a king. They give him a crown, and they give him a robe of purple. They slap him on the face. It looks like he is just passive, and they're in charge. He doesn't look very much like a king. But what you find is very often in John's gospel, people speak and do better than they know. So although they are mockingly treating him as a king, the irony is he actually is a king. We see this sort of irony brought out very much in John chapter 11. There's a time when the leaders are are getting together and they're wondering what on earth to do about Jesus. Jesus is going to cause trouble, and if uh, he causes trouble, they, they fear the Romans are going to come in and take the temple away. And so one of them, the chief priest, Caiaphas, stands up in chapter 11, verse 49, and says, you know nothing, he says uh, to the rest of the counselors. Uh, And then he says, you don't realize one person has to die on behalf of the people. It's better that than the whole nation perish. And, And he, of course, means we've got to kill him. We've got to bump him off, and then the problems will go away. But when he says it's better for one person to die on behalf of the nation, he's also saying something deeper than he even knows to be true. And John comments, you know, this he said because he was high priest and he was prophesying. Now, he didn't even realize he was prophesying. He just thought he was trying to take control of the situation. So in other words, people say and do better than they know. 
Then in chapter 19 and verse 4, we see Pilate comes out and speaks to the gathered Jews. He says, look, I'm bringing them out to know, so that you know that he is innocent. I find no basis of the charge for him. Now, what we find is Pilate in this passage is just going out and in and out and in and out and in. Five times he goes in and out between chapters 18 and chapter 19. And this is the second time he testifies to Jesus' innocence. Why does he say he's innocent? Well, part of what he's trying to do is he's trying to wash his own hands from the situation. But of course, in doing that, he's testifying to his own guilt. And then in verse 5, what does he do? He points to Jesus and he brings him out mockingly to the people and says, look, here is the man. Look at him. Behold the man. But of course, as he does so, he really is the right man to look at. Because There's no person that you should look at more than at Jesus. He is supremely the man, the best man there ever was. In fact, John's Gospel tells us how he came down from heaven and it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if you behold Jesus and you see him being mocked by his creatures, you suddenly see how his creatures treat the creator. And again, a third time, he gives testimony to his innocence in verse 6. But then the Jewish Jewish leaders insist, no, verse 7, we have a law, they say, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now, by that, they mean he's committed blasphemy. The penalty in the law for blasphemy is death. But you can think of their words another way. We have a law, and according to that law, he has to die. Because the law has a function as predicting and prophesying. And it's true, even more than they know, that according to the law, he does have to die. So you see, they mean one thing. And actually, there's a deeper meaning too. And so you have to ask yourself the question, who is in charge of this situation? I mean, it rather looks like Jesus is not in charge, and that Pilate's in charge, and and the Jewish leaders are in charge of the situation. But in fact, something deeper is going on here, isn't it? Now, when Pilate, in verse 8, hears that Jesus has been uh, saying that he's the Son of God, it says that Pilate, the governor, is afraid. And so he goes back inside, and he says to Jesus, where have you come from? At which point, Jesus gives him no reply. Why does he give him no reply? Well, he ought to already have enough information to know something of where he comes from. And he also gives him no reply because in Isaiah 53 and verse 7, a a passage predicting so many of the events of the crucifixion, it says that as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. So Pilate thinks he's in charge, so he's going to play the power card. He says this in verse 10. Don't you speak to me? Don't you know I have authority to release you? an authority to crucify you. I am in charge. That's what Pilate claims. Now, Jesus is not going to let that one pass in silence. Jesus challenges that. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. God gives all authority. Any power that you have is simply derivative. And he goes on to say that, therefore, the one who handed you over to me has more guilt. Now, I think that's not Judas, but Caiaphas, the high priest, 
who, having been given authority from God to be high priest, has misused that power in order to hand Jesus over. So Pilate says, I'm in charge, and yet he is completely wrong. And it says in verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Now that's interesting. The governor, the person in charge of the land, trying to set Jesus free. He has just claimed that he's able to set Jesus free. He has the authority to, and now he's trying to, and yet he's not successful. Because the Jewish leaders taunt him and say, well, if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar's, and you know he doesn't want to fall out with Caesar. So in other words, he says he's got one power, but actually he doesn't. You've got power to let him go free? Well, go on, do it, Pilate. I mean, use your power. But of course, he doesn't. And what we see here is that often the powers we think we have actually aren't there because they're constrained by things like friendship. Now, friendship can be a very good thing, but I don't think Pilate was really a friend of Caesar in the sense of a buddy, you know, and someone you'd like to have a cookout with and and, and so on. I mean, what's going on there is he's worried about falling out with Caesar. Now, are there things that you or I don't do because we're worried about falling out with someone? I mean, we we know that they are good things to do, but we're actually worried about what other people will think. If I open my mouth at this point, if I say something, am I still going to be in the gang? Am I still going to be uh, accepted as a friend? And there you can persuade yourself that you've got powers when you don't, because you don't actually have the moral power. Pilate thinks he's got power, over the whole of Judea. He hasn't even got power over himself. Then we have in verse 13, he brings uh, Jesus to the place of judgment. This great place, and he sits down on the seat of judgment. We often know that seats can be associated with power and authority. So here it looks rather like Pilate is the person judging Jesus. Of course, when we've been reading through John's gospel, we know that it's rather different. Because although Christ didn't come into the world to judge the world, as it says, nevertheless, judgment has been given to him. John chapter 5 and verse 22, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. And there are many other verses beside that. In other words, Pilate thinks he's the judge, but in fact, this is his trial. It's the Passover time. The time which is when the Jews celebrate the very greatest victory of the Old Testament over the great monarch Pharaoh, who thought he was in charge, and God showed no, that he, God, was the great king. And he says, behold, there is your king. Here he is, verse 14. He says, behold your king. And you know what? He's saying that mockingly to the Jews. He's saying, you Jews, that's your king. I mean, look at him. But in fact, he's speaking better than he knows. Again, isn't he? Because really, he is the king of the Jews. He is the supreme king of the whole world. They call out, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? They have the reply. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Now, that's very interesting. Chief priests, people appointed by God to be in charge of the whole religious life, of Israel. These people worried that the Romans might get more authority because they might come and get rid of the temple 
if Jesus stirs up too much difficulty. And here they say, we have no king but Caesar. In other words, ultimately, there is a sign of their hypocrisy. Jesus has often said that he was going away. And here we see Jesus being taken away. So he delivers Jesus over to be crucified in verse 16. The soldiers took him, thinking that they were in charge. They crucified two criminals, one on either side of him, doing so in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, which says that he was numbered with the transgressors. They have a sign written over him at Pilate's command that he is the king of the Jews. It's written in three languages. This causes a bit of a dispute because the chief priest protests to Pilate, don't write that, just say that was his claim. Not that he's actually that. And Pilate, in his stubbornness, and, and because he wants to up, uh, upset these people and mock them, refuses to change what he's written. But of course, even as he does so, he is testifying to the, the truth that Jesus really is the king of the Jews. And so here we have Jesus, crowned with thorns, given a robe, given the title king, and those are all so true. Now, I want us to read the rest of the passage, because I like reading the passage, because it means that however lousy everything I say is, at least you get the passage. So let's go on from chapter 19, verse 23 through to 37. Let's read some more. Chapter 19, verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and a disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, Behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So here we see the soldiers. They have a problem. Jesus' garment is one piece. They don't want to tear it, and so they decide they're going to leave things to chance. The ultimate way of leaving things to chance is, of course, using lots. And so they decide to cast lots. 
But even as they leave things to chance, things aren't quite left to chance because by casting lots, they are fulfilling prophecy from Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 22. In other words, they think it's chance, but something else is going on. And then in the middle of the crucifixion, we have what seems a little bit strange. This conversation between Jesus and his mother and the beloved disciple. Why do we suddenly have this from verses 25 to 27? I think the clue is in that word Jesus uses to speak to his mother, namely the word woman. It's not the only time in John's gospel that he calls his mother woman. You remember the other time is in John chapter 2, when Mary has come to him and is concerned about the lack of wine at the wedding in Cana. And what does Jesus say to her? Well, literally says, what to me and to you, woman? My hour has not yet come. Now that seems like a bit of a rebuke, doesn't it? And, and sometimes when people have come across this passage, they've been troubled because why is Jesus so rude to his mother? Sometimes Bible translators have wanted to, to find some way of making it not quite so upsetting, like they might say, dear woman or, or lady or something like that, because you don't want them just go in calling a woman because that's insulting to women, isn't it? But thinking that this is insulting to women actually misses the point. It's not insulting to women in general. It's insulting to a mother in particular. Because there are only two occurrences in the whole of Greek literature where a son calls his mother woman. And they're in John's Gospel. Because what do you call your mother? Well, in my, my language, over in my country, it's M-U-M. I know it's M-O-M over for you. And I, I, I can't pronounce it in your language. But, you know, mum or mummy or whatever is what you might call her, mother dear. But you do not call her woman. Really. And if you do, counselling is needed. Uh, and, and you see, you don't, don't just call your mother woman because she's not just any old woman. She may be a young woman. I mean, she's not just any woman. She is a particular person who has held you inside her body, the closest possible relationship you can imagine. So what is Jesus doing calling her woman? He is putting distance between himself and her in regard to that very particular relationship. So when you ask yourself the question, who is Mary's son in this transaction? It's the beloved disciple. Who is the beloved disciple's mother? It's Mary. Now, of course, it is correct to refer to Mary as Jesus' mother. It's one of the first things you learn in Sunday school, isn't it? I hope you learn even before that, uh, if you're brought up in a Christian family. But to dwell on that misses the point. Mary was a remarkable woman. Incredible. Can you think of any person in such a privileged and unique position as her? No. Really a great role model. But when the Council of Ephesus in the year 431 decided to give Mary the title Mother of God, they were going a step too far. You can see the logic. Mary is Jesus' mother. Jesus is God. Therefore, Mary is Mother of God. And our, our friends in the Roman Catholic Church, with whom we have uh, many common beliefs and some uh, uh, beliefs that we disagree on, but, but the point is this, they would want to accord to Mary a sort of special status, almost like a royal mother, a, a status which is special by association. 
Now, we want to say that although we have the utmost respect for Mary and the task she fulfilled so well, here we have the king distancing himself from his mother as mother, not disrespecting her, not breaking the commandment to honor your father and your mother, because in fact, he's making sure she is looked after. Here she is, possibly a widow, losing her son, and he makes sure she has a son to look after her. So he is honoring his mother, but even as he does so, he is distancing himself from her as mother. Sometimes in our society, we have a sort of importance by association. You know, I was talking to the president last week, I was talking to the queen last week, you know, and you, 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 you sort of try and drop names, name dropping, and that gives you a sort of sense of importance that, you know, whoever you've hung out with, that's how you know how important people, and you measure people's importance in society, don't you, uh, by who they hang out with. You know, you've got certain people called socialites in, in Britain, maybe you've got them over here, who, who just have importance by virtue of the fact they hang out with celebrities, and, that, and so they get covered in all of those sorts of magazines. Um, but, but the point is, here we cannot have that importance by association with Jesus for one person in that way. It's the mistake Peter made at the Transfiguration when you have Moses and Elijah and Jesus to think that Jesus is like the lead in a, ba- a band of three. No. You don't have importance by association like that. We're dealing with the king of the universe, someone who is far above everything else. Of course, we have importance by association in another way. Because through what he did on the cross, it's possible to be children of God. It's possible to be brothers and sisters of Jesus. But that's a, something that's open to all believers, not just to one in a unique sense. So this is an important point where the king distances himself from his mother. But then it goes on. Knowing that everything had been finished, he calls out. In order to fulfill scripture, I'm thirsty. He gets a drink. And then, saying how much scripture is being accomplished, he says, it is finished. And then willingly, in his own power, he gives up his spirit. Fulfilling that part in John's gospel, where it says in John 10, that no one takes his life from him. He lays down his own life in order to take it up again. Here we have Jesus in charge right the way from beginning to end and scripture being fulfilled, even active in giving himself over to death. And then when he's died, has he lost control? Has God lost control of the situation? Let's read on. Verse 31, we see that At this point, the Jewish leaders are concerned. They have a special day coming up, the special great Sabbath, and those bodies are going to be on the cross. They are trying to make sure that that bit of the law doesn't get broken, and so they go to Pilate to make sure the bodies are taken down. That's their impulse. Of course, their concern to fulfill that bit of the law when they've just broken so many other bits of the law is is deeply hypocritical. But that's what the, the impulse that sets them off. That leads to a chain reaction because what happens then is the soldiers then go and start breaking the legs of the criminals. But they come to Jesus and he's already dead. And they feel the impulse to restrain from breaking his legs. But one of them feels an urge to thrust a spear into his side. And out comes the blood and water. And so scripture is fulfilled Not one of his bones will be broken, said of the Passover lamb, and this is Passover time, and also they will look on him 
whom they have pierced. In other words, what we see is God is still in charge. So as we read through this text, we see people thinking one thing and intending one thing and God intending another thing. It's a sort of lesson you get from Joseph. You remember what happens in the Joseph story? His brothers, when they find out Joseph is alive again, of course they're you know, uh, in a bit of turmoil about that. Joseph says, don't worry, you intended it for evil and God intended it for good. So what lessons can we apply to ourselves from this passage? I want to think about two areas that we can learn. One is what this passage teaches us about ourselves, and the second is what this teaches us about our king. So let's think what this passage teaches us about ourselves. There are different people in this passage, the soldiers, Pilate, the chief priests, the people of Judea, all playing different roles, and yet they have the same nature as us, the same human nature. We can't say that what they did is something that we would never do. I've got a friend who, um, a good um, German friend that I sometimes do some um, speaking with, and he, when his father died, found his father's correspondence. His father had been fighting uh, early on in the Second World War, and it said things like this, went to a Russian village, shot all the people, and then it would go on to the next entry. And, you know, he was shocked. It was his father, someone, you know, so much DNA in common, so, so, so much in common, yet the same nature And yet, that is what he'd done. And who of us can say that we could not carry out such great evil? Because what typically we do is we make excuses for our behavior. You see, Pilate could say, well, I'm just trying to govern the land and I'm under a certain amount of pressure. The chief priest could say, well, we're just trying to protect the establishment. We're trying to make sure that the temple stays in order. And that's our job to do, isn't it, as as chief priests? The soldiers could say, well, it's not our job to choose who gets crucified. We're just doing uh, the job in order to make sure it it, it gets done. And and that's how we need to pay for our family and so on. And everyone could wash their hands and say, we've got nothing to do with this. We can't bear the guilt. And yet, they were deeply, deeply guilty. And we would be kidding ourselves if we thought we were not and we would not have acted like that. Even as those people were so full of guilt, they thought that they were in charge of the situation. And yet the soldiers were fulfilling scriptures. Pilate, thinking himself so powerful, didn't even have power over himself. And we can also make that mistake. We make one mistake about thinking of our innocence, another mistake thinking about our power. We think we've got far more power than we actually have. We, we like to tell ourselves a story, our society does, that something goes something like this. Well, in the past, people didn't have much power. They couldn't vote. They couldn't move. They were generally stuck in one social position. Things were pretty bad, uh, lower standards of living, lots of oppressive labor. There was terrible, terrible slavery, poor health, and women had less freedom, and people had less freedom in terms of the relationships that they pursue. And of course, nowadays, we're free. We have better health education, we live for longer, we can forge our own destiny. Now, of course, there have been many, many great and significant improvements. I am so glad that in Britain we don't have children working down the mines anymore. I am so glad that in North America, slavery was abolished. 
I am so glad that people live for longer. I am so glad I don't have to go to the bottom of my yard to go to the privy. There are so many things which have improved. But when we think at the fundamental level of our moral freedom and power, has that really changed? People have freedom to get drugs from all over the world and then you're free to take them and do you have the power to stop taking them? People boast of their freedom in their sexual expression and yet no freedom to escape the consequences of the societal breakup caused by that. We say, look, we have wealth, we have power to do all sorts of things. Do you have the power to walk away from your wealth? I mean, if you don't have the power to walk about away from your wealth, how can you actually say that you have power with your wealth? No, you don't. You say you have power through information, so much access to information. Do you have power to do without that? Or are you, in fact, addicted to just having all that information? So we say we've got all this power and power and power, but often we're just kidding ourselves. We kid ourselves that we're innocent and wouldn't have done what they did. And we kid ourselves that we have power morally when we have no power other than by God's work in us. So I think this passage tells us a lot about ourselves and makes us ask some deep questions about who we really are. But it also tells us about our king. Because we see, so obviously, that this king, King Jesus, is sovereign throughout. It's not just the sovereignty of the Father. This is the sovereignty of God. This is the sovereignty of the Son. It is said at the beginning of the gospel, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. He says that he has power to lay down his life and also power to take it up. He had power that initiated his own resurrection. Of course, it also says in the, in, in the Bible that, that, that the Father raised him. But the, the, the point is, it's not that the Son ceased to exist after he died, if you see what I mean. I know there's great mystery there. But he says in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I will raise it up in three days. He remains sovereign in everything, every lost cast, every word spoken, every move of the spear. What Pilate has written, he remains sovereign. There is no accident. Sovereign over the crucifixion and sovereign over our lives in no less detailed a way. Now, there's a great danger here. Because when you hear the word sovereign, you could be thinking, aha, God's like some puppeteer controlling the universe. You know, it's just pulling the strings. We're like puppets. We're like pawns. We can do nothing. But that's not a biblical picture of God's sovereignty. The biblical picture of God's sovereignty is so much more mysterious. God somehow achieves his ends. Prophecy really is fulfilled, and yet he is utterly, utterly innocent of all of the bad that goes on, and utterly separate from that, completely holy. The holiness of God is underlined throughout. If we start using categories imported from philosophy, like causation, the, the Bible just won't allow us to do that. It's, its way of talking about these things is so much more complex. It will talk about things that God delights in and contrast them with things he does not delight in. It will talk in active language in regard to the way he brings about some things in the world and not in regard to other things. And, and so the complexity of Scripture is quite clear that we cannot say that God is the author 
of sin, that he's the cause of sin. That's not biblical. But we still might be concerned. We might be concerned that how can God work out all of his sovereign purposes and get all of his prophecies fulfilled and be in charge of everything and yet still be innocent? Firstly, I think we have to just accept the Bible's testimony in it. And secondly, we have an abundant proof in the Bible that God is not that puppeteer and the proof is in this passage. Because this is not the king of the universe who stays sovereign over all and detached from all. This is the king of the universe who allowed himself to be flogged by the people he had made using things he had made. This is the king who allowed his creatures to make a crown of thorns. Thorns which had been uh, uh, called first in that curse as a result of human sin that the, the, the ground's going to raise up thorns, that he allowed those to be thrust onto his head. He allowed himself to be executed in the most cruel way. He genuinely was passive, even as they did this. He was a victim, even as they pierced his side. They take his clothing away. They deal with him in a most shameful way. And it is the cross, my friends, which establishes so much about this God, this king. We're not dealing with a detached king. A king who doesn't know suffering, a king who doesn't know pain, for whom it's all just a show. This is real. The fact that this king went through so much for us is the proof that he is innocent. Just as the testimony of Pilate thrice in chapters 18 and 19 is that he is innocent. So the whole passage tells us This is a king who is utterly innocent and dies on behalf of those who are utterly guilty. And that is us. And so as we look at this king, we see one whom we can trust. Behold the man. There's no better man to look at. Behold your king. There is no better king to have. Behold someone who is innocent. This passage will tell us also that he is the truth. End of chapter 18. Pilate gets into a relativistic mode. What is truth, he asks, because Jesus has just said, everyone who comes from the truth listens to me. Now, Pilate's not a complete relativist because he calls Jesus innocent. And what you find is usually when people are relativists, they're relativists sometimes and not at other times. People are not relativistic about their paycheck, you know, and things like that. They get very absolute about that. But here we find that Jesus is the truth. The whole testimony about him. He is the one to look at. And so when we look at ourselves and we see how guilty we are, how caught up we are in this world of sin, we have the fact that our holy God, so utterly separate from all sin, and yet our sovereign God in charge of the whole universe, so we mustn't despair that things are running out of control, he has entered into this world and sovereignly and willingly suffered and died on behalf of us. If you're not a believer this morning, I just commend to you to look at Jesus. You can look at the Christians around you, and there's some wonderful Christians I know in this church, wonderful believers, wonderful testimonies in their lives. But you may be able to find faults with them if you get to know them better. But what you won't find is any fault with Jesus. He's the one to look at. And for those who've been Christians, some shorter times, some for longer times, Let's look to Jesus and let's realize that our own weakness, we are so powerless in regard to those things that we often think we're powerful in. 
We lack the moral power and realize that he is the one who sets an example for us and gives us the power to overcome sin. That he is the one who sets that wonderful example of laying down his life for others. You know, real power is not the sort of power that Pilate thought he had, that power of controlling a society and so on. Real power is that moral power that Jesus Christ showed when he showed that he could lay down his life for others. And that's the power. We need to ask God to show his power in our lives, even as we, in weakness, seek to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we find that your word challenges us about who we are. We pray that you would strip away those delusions that we have of of grandeur, of innocence, of power, and you'd show us who we are before you. We lie naked with nothing to commend ourselves to you, but we thank you for Jesus Christ who has taken the penalty for our sin, who completely innocent has swapped his record with ours and made it possible that we can know you. We are amazed that we're able to gain an interest in the Savior's blood, that he died for us even though we caused his pain. And we bless you for all that we hear in the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.